Salams and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today we have part two of the conversation between Professor Saman Said and Professor Ella Shohat, where they discuss, amongst other topics, ghosts, nationalism, national identity, and their role in calls for liberation. This is Network Reorient coming to you from the Critical Muslim Studies summer school at Granada. Um, we are here facing the Alhambra and I'm very delighted to have as my guest Professor Ella Shohat who has been teaching at this uh, summer school and um, we are taking part in this series of what we've decided to call them rather grandly but rather very quickly um, Granada Dialogues and um, what I'll do is maybe Ella you could start of saying something about the fact that here we are in Granada which is given as an exemplar of a kind of judo-arabic islamic the world of free, uh, space there and maybe you could sort of start of talking about your own work in relation to these sorts of um, configurations which are often now seen as being polar opposites rather than amalgamations well thank you Salman again for uh, this invitation for a, a conversation once again here in this wonderful uh, place just across from the Alhambra I am, uh, you know, we. I feel we that in many ways, being here, we we live and think almost the ghost of history, the ghost of the Jew, the ghost of the Muslim, uh, and that uh, perhaps even if physically uh, they had to depart from Al Andalus, Al Andalus never departed mm -hmm. from them. Continue to circulate as a trope, both of nostalgia, uh, but also of uh, certain uh, oh, anxiety. Yeah. Right. Uh, so both co coexist simultaneously. Um, what is fascinating is we talked before uh, in the previous uh, conversation about the fact that even around the quincentenary, the uh, when the convivencia was imagined. Uh, I've attended, I attended several events uh, organized by Jewish institutions, say one in UCLA, where the emphasis was not simply on the Christians persecuting the Jews, but really about how ultimately the Muslims were persecuting the Jews. Mm. A new kind of narrative emerged which was not simply of convivencia, mm. but also about the Jew as always already a victim, not only mm. of Christian, but mm. also of Muslims and that um, you know some of uh, new novels that were written around that time for example the Alhambra decree uh, even though we're, it was about the uh, expulsion by the Catholic Church uh, the focus was uh, of the uh, departing Jews as experiencing along the ways uh, incredible uh, atrocities mm -hmm. from the Muslims. So it was impossible for me not to read this type of uh, rewriting of the convivencia along contemporary um, Islamophobic, but also mm. you know, in light of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, mm. where mm. a certain idea uh, of uh, Jewish nationalism and Jewish national identity emerges, not simply as a religious uh, history, or what we would say, a religious history that was always syncretic, really, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but also uh, now being read along separatist partition type of logics. 
No, this is really interesting because in a way um, you mentioned this that um, in 1992 and you know there's a book comes out by um, Robert Fletcher, uh, Richard Fletcher on Moorish Spain where of course he makes the same argument that you know we're not what I mean the same argument the argument that really this is not some sort of space in which there was um, a different way of being let's put it that way um, without going into it. and of course you know there's there's a danger in these things that we often sit down and there's a kind of a romanticization mm-hmm. of the past in a way and I think you know we both agree that there is no doubt there was friction and there was jostling people would jostle and things like that but it was still a there wasn't this demand for a nationalized homogeneity based on that and I think that's something that is really um, worth thinking about in a sense that what happens to spaces urban spaces with this kind of demand for Conformity, I guess, what I'm trying to say, and yeah, homogenization. Absolutely. Yeah, I think really what is at stake is uh, the nationalist imaginary as formulated within nationalist ideology that were ethno racialist mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. ended up traveling into the colonies, and therefore, ultimately, even if anti colonialist nationalists produce their uh, national identities in response to the atrocities of colonialism, they unfortunately often also took with them the same paradigm of how to formulate a national identity that is homogeneous, which ultimately meant suppressing the cultural syncretism, Mm -hmm. suppressing uh, uh, groups that did not have access to power, communities that were marginalized, whether they were numerically majority Mm -hmm. or numerically minority. Mm -hmm. So this is really... uh, Crucially, is something that we still live with in the uh, in the contemporary era. In the case of the Arab Jew coming to specifically uh, our discussion, um, we have uh, uh, an identity, uh, or uh, where I insisted on reinserting, as it were, the hyphen between the Jew and the Arab, precisely because nationalist identities were all about separating. Mm-hmm the two ideas of the Jew and the Arab as cohesive nationalist identities that presumably were mutually exclusive, Mm. but they were Mm. not, Mm. of course. Mm. But I think it more so in the case, whereas, say, in the foundation of Arab nationalism, Mm. the variety of religions Mm. could be accommodated Mm. according to an ethno-Arab identity, but only it's, at that stage. But, just, but, yes. but in a way, it was the ethnic identities, yes, yes. say the so-called Berber, mm. uh, the uh, Amazigh, yeah, yeah. or the Kurds. Yeah. Actually, they were more challenging yeah. to the Arab national yeah. identity, say, than the idea of the Jew or the idea of yeah. the Christian. Yeah, yeah. But I think with the, in the case of uh, especially the Jew, the idea mm. of the Jew, the the competing mm. nationalism mm. of Zionism mm-hmm. actually produced uh, uh, the place of the Arab Jew uh, within this kind of horrible yeah. uh, dilemma, uh, which uh, uh, you know Jews had to choose ultimately between an Arab identity and a Jewish identity for the first time mm. in their history. And this is something extraordinary because even as a child, I used to find it very odd when you had descriptions normally done like the it would be like the Jewish Arab wars, like these two things are similar, that, you know, in a way that there's a kind of monadic element to them. 
And I guess uh, one of the issues, I suppose, that comes around from all of this is that the very nature of what constitutes a, let's say, a political, a transgenerational political identification or a political identity, um, you know, as you're aware, that within the kind of discourse of Arab nationalism, it's, it is on certain lines, on the lines of um, religious affiliation, very, very ecumenical. But it does this by making, for example, the, in the case of Islam more specifically, a expression of Arabness. So the kind of there's a kind of a notion of the Arabness is the primordial and transhistorical mm -hmm. container in which is expressed through all these different places. Now, we talked before about the work of Peter Webb, for example, mm -hmm. trying to sort of navigate that relationship between the constitutiveness uh, and the emergence of Arabness mm -hmm. and the Arabic as not necessarily being part of the kind of nationalist narrative, but emerging actually at a different moment. In an uh, earlier, earlier moment. moment early moment. The Arabs are expanding, or they cannot even be called an Arab they because be called, yeah. they were had community tribal names yes, yeah. and not a general name, but it is only as they're moving out uh, uh, as, as a diaspora, yeah, as it yeah, were, yeah. that vis-a-vis -vis the people who are already in those regions, say in what is Iraq today or Mesopotamia, yeah, yeah, yeah. that this kind, and later, of course, with the uh, arrival to North Africa, yeah. that this formulation of an Arabian identity yeah. come to make sense. But that formulation is a kind of ethnicization. And what I think is what is interesting is a kind of retrospective reconstruction Mm -hmm. that what an Arab was in those days, where he seemed to be suggesting an Arab was a synonym for a Muslim or a something Islamic hate there, mm -hmm. becomes an Arab what is today. So in a sense, there's almost a linearity. Now, you can see that kind of ethnicization is part of, I think, what we said before, the construction of the nation as the only viable expression of political and cultural life that can be sustained. And it seems to me that one of the dilemmas that people of the South face in, in different degrees is precisely this kind of, um, you know, without being too daring, this kind of both a kind of poison and cure of the nation. There's a pharmacon <laughs> element of the, yeah. you know, the nation is a both as, as a kind of liberatory possibility. Exactly. As long as the nation was articulated against colonialism, yeah. I think for us, speaking of the trans yeah. Region, yeah. Uh, generational yeah. term that yeah. we evoked, yeah. it is one thing, you know, about occupation. but. In this process, a national identity was produced in order to fit paradigms produced in Europe about who has a right to liberate themselves. Yeah. So if you are not defined as a nation, you have no right to exist without uh, a colonialism yeah. or without European yeah. rule. Yeah. So yeah. in some ways, uh, nationalism, as we know, came to be in the third, what was called the third world, yeah. a response to a demand uh, to articulate the paradigm of liberation within, as you said, within the same kind of poison, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the, the cure and the poison in yeah, the same yeah. uh, rule. So, but coming back to your previous comment about Arabness, what, what constitutes Arabness, um, I've been dealing, delving more and more into this question mm. uh, in my attempt to think about this notion of the Arab Jew. And... Uh, as we know, uh, you know, in what is called Arabia, mm. uh, there were Jews, yes. of course, yeah, just yeah, as yeah. they were, you know, Christians yes. uh, 
and before that, uh, you know, mm. various religious practices. Mm. So, the notion of um, uh, this, the problem that is being posed and the challenge, you know, uh, uh, some essays that attack me called the reject the Arab Jew. Mm. Uh, what is interesting, uh, my argument again, or that you know there is another idea. You can you can use the term. This is a new formulation. Mm-hmm. You can use the term Arab Jew, but not in the current era. Only to apply for Arabic speaking Jews, especially this mm-hmm. book, um, mm-hmm. uh, Futsa Arabic, mm-hmm. participated in Arab nationalism uh, and lived in the mm-hmm. Arab world. You cannot use it. Say diasporically to the for a transgender. However, those people somehow do not question Arab American for Muslims, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is fascinating. It is interesting. Uh, but because but what you see here is, I suppose, what the what, what you're saying yeah. just to clarify is that mm-hmm. what you have is a construction of two ethnicizations of two identities in exactly. a way. There, because why it becomes an oxymoron is that yeah. it means that the Jewish. The, identification the Jewish is, identification is not it's uh, not allowed in relation to the Arabness, yeah. but for the Muslim it is allowed. Yeah. For the Christian, it is allowed. It is allowed yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe less so, less so than the Muslim. True, but, but more so that, than the the, Jew, the contemporary yeah. Jew. Because in a sense, what you're talking, what you're then saying, the implication is this: that anyone can be a Christian. Yeah. Anyone can be a, a Muslim. Muslim. But the but Jew can only be, be an ethnic yeah, That. And that is uh, a very much a product of the modern conceptualization of Jewishness along uh, ethno-nationalist lines emerging in the nineteenth uh, century. So my my point is that the same criteria that denies the right to for for a Jew to be an Arab actually could, by the same token deny the right to any Arab to be an Arab unless they are, can trace their lineage directly to Arabia somehow. Why would Egyptian or Moroccan can claim a certain kind of Arabness, you know, or Iraqis for that sense, you know, because we had Aramaic as a uh, lingua franca, right? Uh, so, but what's interesting, uh, you find within Arab nationalist discourses, and especially now that I've been working on Judeo-Arabic, it's fascinating to me the, the desire to formulate Arabic as a Semitic language that within it also had sub-Semitic languages which were Aramaic mm-hmm. or even Hebrew for mm-hmm. that matter. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, within Hebrew Semitic studies, mm-hmm. uh, uh, within those nationalist mm-hmm. paradigm, you would find that Hebrew and Aramaic become the uh, archetypical Semitic language and Arabic followed after. So you have kind of <laughs> opposite genealogies yeah, yeah, of yeah, or you know, yeah. the idea of which is the true Semitic yeah. language of which I believe. Well, the real Semites stand up. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, just as you had also uh, certain uh, linguists in the, uh, in the Arab world who, because of this association of Hebrew with Semitic language, uh, wanted to dis- distanciate you mm. know, the idea of Arabic from the notion of the Semitic mm. because as we know it emerges as a, first of all as a linguistic yeah. uh, category in the late 18th century and then tr- uh, uh, becomes an ethno-racial yeah. uh, identity uh, but I think it poses questions not simply for the Jew, the idea of the Jew and the idea of the Arab but really because the ethnicities now as formulated as ethno-national identities mm. are in conflict, mm. there is this effort to create hierarchy, yeah. uh, almost kind yeah. of an archaeological linguistic hierarchy yeah. 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 between the two. But my point is that 
if Arabness is problematized for the Jew, Arabness has to be, could be problematized equally for all spaces, for exactly. Egypt, for Morocco, for Tunisia, yeah. because all of those spaces are but you could spaces go of cultural Absolutely. syncretism, palimpsestic identities, and any attempt to search for an originary uh, point uh, for one group or another is ultimately not only futile, but actually dangerous. No, I, I mean, I agree with you, and I would say that it's not just, I would even expand that, because the argument, you can make the same argument for Turk, that you can make the same argument for all these kind of groups, but I would say you could even make the same argument for English and French. Absolutely. The thing is that we have, because of the way it's been done, the violence mm -hmm. of the construction of the French or the English has been written out in the sense that it's exactly. been erased. Well, that actually brings me to the you know conversation we had previously, which was you know the notion of the Anglo-Saxons and the Latin, yeah. you know, uh, as presumably mutually exclusive. First of all, in the English language, we have yeah. both Latin yeah. and yeah. Germanic, right? Yeah. Yeah. But apart from it, you know, uh, one have to to critique Weber in for a certain kind of an essentialist discourses. Mm -hmm. And in um, you know this work of the tropical Orientalism yeah. mm. and race in translation, basically we focus on the notion that uh, Anglo-Saxon and and Latin are, are also ideological constructs. There, really, we have to speak about Anglo-Saxonism mm. and Latinism yeah. in the contemporary yeah. era, yeah. Uh, which are also um, have to be understood as part of this kind of regional nationalism. Uh, surely it affects also the way the Moor and the Sephardi sure. are constructed yeah. as part of the Latin, in the case of, as we talked about, the Latin American mm. idea of mm. obsession with the Moor and the Sephardi. But coming back to this idea that, you know, even within the history of Europe, mm. uh, this is a false uh, yeah. binarism. Yeah. Certainly, in the case, in, when we think about the long history, the long durée mm. of... Uh, uh, the Islamic spaces, or pre-Islamic even, the, the Near East, Middle East, um, we have to, to rethink those categories because we have, everywhere we will dig, we will find mixtures. So mm -hmm. it would be linguistic mixture, cultural mixture, culinary mixtures, mm -hmm. and you can find it in the very multiple dialects of Arabic. Mm -hmm. And the regionalism of Arabic is reflective of those uh, 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 histories of movements. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, in the Iraqi dialect of Arabic, you would find easily Aramaic words. Some say that maku aku, you know, mm -hmm. uh, there is, there is, the reason there is, uh, uh, are actually uh, aku maku, uh, mm -hmm. uh, are actually uh, reflective of Aramaic. Uh, you have Turkish and Persian, mm -hmm. just as in North Africa, especially in the Maghrebi. Darija, you mm. would have quite a bit of mm. Tamziri, and you know, of course, French mm. by now. So any attempt to even purify, uh, you know, the Ba'ath wanted to, the uh, Saddam wanted to purify Arabic of any Persian mm. Uh, mm. Uh, influences. So, uh, I mean, there is there is a level. That's why I say it's this purification idea. Of but I think this is where everything mm -hmm. is really interesting because mm -hmm. one of the most pernicious. Um, elements of Eurocentricism mm -hmm. is this attempt to retrospectively reconstruct the history of the planet as a history of ethnicities. And it's a basically a racial yeah, idea. Totally. And except now or and even evolution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's got all those elements mm -hmm. there. And now we tend to talk about cultures rather than race because we, you know, we're nervous about 
people that, and some yeah, people post, we post used to post Holocaust. No, right. and this is the other thing that people don't. Before the Holocaust, the idea of the race was there. It's the Holocaust which marks the kind of, um, or I think marks the kind of anxiety, anxiety about using words, race. Yeah. And, 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 and what's happening most well, of I'll tell yeah. you that our book, Race in Translation, actually, yeah. it was translated to German. Yeah. When we received a copy of the book, we actually thought, oh, how avant-garde of them to not translate the title of our book in, into German and keep it in English, Race in Translation. Only that when we <laughs> went for a book event in, in Berlin, uh, it was explained to us, no, 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 the word, it is the nervousness in the context of Germany to use the word, word race in yeah. German, right? German, yeah. Yeah. So they kept... Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's, but I think it goes back to the things we were talking about, really, that in a way that if, um, you know, you want to decolonize and be part of a decolonizing project, then part of it, and I know, I wonder if you had this experience, often when you give a talk, things like that, and you come, a student comes to you quite sort of enthusiastic and eager, says, yes, yes, I've read Orientalism, I'm on with the project, now can you point to me to non-Orientalist history? Yeah. And you kind of scratch your head in a way, because so much of the discourse remains Eurocentric that all you can point to are these very specialised archipelagos, and it's not really part of that narrative. And I guess for me, one of the things is this really when we start thinking about the kind of way that national mm -hmm. histories furnish basically the language around which we understand the world in different ways. Or even as an, uh, nationalism becomes itself a vehicle presumably for anti-Orientalist thinking, yes. but in doing so it generates certain kind of epistemological violence toward its own diversity, yes. its own multiple histories. And I think probably the answer to uh, my students uh, is usually maybe we don't need any mm. kind of uh, over grand narrative of uh, uh, you know th this type of history yeah. that is not orientalist yeah. or yeah. Uh, we have to dig into various cultural productions and for me it's important to speak also about cultural practices yeah. In those cultural practices, say of music or food, for example, food yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. that's what I was yeah, about. Yeah. The culinary, yeah. the culinary traditions, um, and not only the written, because when we uh, valorize only text, we, in my opinion, participate in a certain kind of hierarchies of the senses, in a hierarchy of cultural expressions. Um, and I think, we, especially within us growing within monotheistic mm. traditions, mm. we have a tendency to also produce this type of hierarchy. And I think our critique and, you know, incorporating, say, in dialogue with various what would be called in various indigenous cosmologies yeah, yeah, yeah. or non-monotheistic tradition yeah. would be to also imagine the world, um, you know, in, in, in the ideas about the world in a very complex way. So I'm not sure that we can have an answer that would be one kind of uh, the non-orientalist yeah, history. Yeah, no, we yeah. would have to, to change even our perspectives and our way of producing knowledge, uh, and, and, and that's why I actually enjoy very much teaching a variety of cultural expressions yeah. and yeah. as ways of producing uh, knowledge. No, I think this is really, really excellent, because in a way, what we then move into, and I think the, the example of the f cuisine is really fundamental, A, 
more humans eat, yeah. and the way, and ultimately, but it, it's the whole kind of. But that, and you say you know it is not textual. I mean, mm-hmm. they're cookbooks, but ultimately, you know, people sure. can write and good there are instructions, instructions uh, and all to sorts eat, of things. What is for what halal? What is kosher? Exactly, and, and it's the sequencing. I mean, the whole thing of the baths, the food system, and things like that. Sure. And you can do lots of kind of analysis around these things, but not just analysis. I mean, you know, you can taste it as well. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the other thing there. So I think this is really, really important that you broaden the ways in which, I guess, peoplehood is expressed mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways. And, it's, and the thing with food, I guess, is that, again, it's the kind of openness of it. Sure, but here, too, you have a battle over nationalist yeah. culinary identities. Yeah. The battle and, for hummus, uh, for example. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, the appropriation, yeah. etc. But more than that, you know, I've noticed, you know, and this is for the case of the Arab Jew, how the... Uh, how that is even constructed mm. as Jewish foods, just as Jewish languages, as though they're separate. And in the case of, uh, you know, my work on the deconstruction of Judeo-Arabic mm. as a language mm. separate from Judeo-Arabic, is also applicable to the notion of Jewish foods. Yes, there are certain, there is a certain grammar of what is forbidden, mm. what is permitted. But within that, to only connect Jewish cuisine and then separate, say, what we did in Baghdad, mm. you know, mm. so... Even though maybe the haram and the kasher was not exactly the same, although they have a, mm. had a lot in common, the culinary methods, the cooking yeah. ideas, the spicing, shared the same mm. language, even within a certain kind of variation. Mm. So the problem with the construct, construction of nationalist uh, or even sep- around religious mm. separation can be highly problematic when you don't sh- look into... You have to look simultaneously into what's different, but also the continuities. Yeah. No, so not just yeah. ruptures, but continuities. You know, listening to it has reminded me of sort of these um, small communities in what is that, you know Eastern Turkestan, where you had these kind of small oasis communities where you'd have um, you know uh, Muslims and Jews co-sharing their food mm-hmm. in relation to what was going on because they're both kind of almost kind of exilic in that mm-hmm. way there. And you have the rules of, for example, what is kosher and what is uh, being transformed in a sense on those kind of moments of those experiences. And then many of these kind of... So you know when you're speaking about the multiple Andalusias, so you can actually see them all over the place once you start looking in a way for that. And uh, into the way people are trying to survive in yeah. diasporic... Diasporic settings spaces. and trying to make certain kinds of linkages and mm-hmm. things like that. And I guess at the end, you know, what it turns upon is what we've been sort of talking about, is these kind of, in a way, one way of understanding Andalusia would be in the current kind of climate as a kind of an anti-particular form of ethno-nationalism. Because what it sort of shows is how those kinds of things, that homogenization, that nationalization, can't can't contain. Can't contain. Cannot contain. Cannot be contained. And and Al Andalus is not just a geography, no. right? As we know, it's an idea. But Al Andalus was not simply, as we said, located simply in Al Andalus. Not only because spaces of uh, living and negotiating life and existing together, but also because there was a movement, traveling of ideas mm. from Damascus, Baghdad mm. to yeah. Al Andalus, right? Uh, from Fez to and Al Andalus, all of those uh, they are not separated spaces, uh, you know, through the traveling of letters, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. or also of bodies, bodies of people yeah. move, moving, you know, uh, it, within Jewish tradition. It's 
you know, of course, you know, Maimonides is in dialogue yeah. with uh, Muslim thinkers, mm-hmm. philosophers. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the idea of reading, uh, say, his text as part of a Judeo-Arabic uh, language, you know, often now tend to highlight that at the expense uh, of dialogue, or presumably that dialogue only happened in the past. Mm-hmm. It is very, very unfortunate, I think, that today, you know, it, uh, you know, both Arab nationalism and Jewish nationalism uh, read that history in, in separatist mm-hmm. way, or as a unique moment mm-hmm. uh, that has nothing to do with the modern uh, era, when in fact, you know, uh, you know, it is ultimately colonialism. We have to look into colonialism, into the way it uh, not privileged minorities, yeah. Mm-hmm. and we see the results of it today. You know, privileging Christian minorities or Jewish minorities mm-hmm. in Muslim spaces, mm-hmm. beginning in the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. was ultimately the I would call it the the ruptures before the grand rupture yeah. with the yeah. uh, uppercase R, which yeah. is the post forty eight. Yeah. Yeah. rupture in terms of the Jew in relation yeah. to Muslim spaces. Yeah. But those actually the cracks were beginning to happen uh, in the, the colonized world. Uh, the key, you know, the most extreme case perhaps is Algeria mm-hmm. with the Crimea decree, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, gave, granted Jews in Algeria citizenship, French citizenship, yeah. but yeah. not to the Muslims. But Jews did not ask for that citizenship, no, no. and that's really the uh, you know the notion of uh, this uh, emancipation of the Jews that took place in France and now is traveling to 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 Arab spaces as a kind of a grand rescue narrative. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, mm-hmm. ignores the fact that Jews who wanted to maintain their traditional religion were not interested in this idea until. You know the schooling system that Cremier himself helped establish, the Alliance, mm-hmm. uh, the Alliance schooling system, which were directed at Jews in the Orient, in the Levant, started educated them to be French, to speak French, mm-hmm. and already created a process. I would call it the deindigenization mm-hmm. of Jews in Muslim spaces. Mm-hmm. So even before partition of Palestine was taking place, the separation of the Jew from the Muslim was taking place in the colony. To the point that a century later, almost, Franz Fanon, in his uh, Algeria Unveiled, Mm. issues a warning to Jews and Muslims in Constantine, telling them, please pay attention to what, basically to the Mm. divide and rule Mm. idea. Mm. Mm. Those who who tell you that you are their brothers, you know, Mm. and basically provoke you to fight mm. the other, yeah. meaning yeah. the Jew against the Muslim mm. and the Muslim against the Jew, mm. watch out. Mm. Just as he says in his early book in Black Skin, White mm. Mask, citing his professor of philosophy, mm. watch out whenever uh, a, a, an might uh, speak about the Jew, know that the anti-Semite is speaking about the black. Mm. And that type of relationality, but he, in in black skin, white mask, the Jew is still a European Jew by assumption. Mm-hmm. But when he moves to Algiers and works in Blida and actually works mm-hmm. with a Jewish psycho yeah. uh, uh, therapist, um, psychiatrist, mm-hmm. sorry, Jacques Azoulay, mm-hmm. that's an Alice Charki who was mm-hmm. uh, his assistant. Mm-hmm. That's when he actually begins to speak about the specific Jew in the colony, yeah. 
and uh, seeing, I mean, it's quite amazing how it's a, it's actually just mm. a, a few lines, mm. but those few lines are incre- incredibly anticipatory of what happens only you know a decade later mm. Mm. when the Jews have to abandon and leave Algeria. Mm. Mm. No, no, I think this is a, this is a, as always uh, we could carry on uh, talking for a long time. Thank you so much, and I'm sure the dialogues will continue. Thank you so much. We will continue. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. So, how many minutes did we do now? This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.